Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into Toe on the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. This is episode 10. We have reached double digits, guys. David Cohn, the industry's foremost expert in stats and history and information, James Smythe. Guys, episode 10, coming during the lockout officially, but David, there's a lot to talk about with this lockout. And also we're talking with someone who you worked with extensively during the last work stoppage. Well, I can't think of one person I'd rather talk to about labor issues than Tom Glavin. Tom Glavin was the National League rep in the heat of the battle back in the 94 and 95 uh, work stoppage. The World Series was canceled, obviously, those of you who know history. Uh, Tom and I were very close back then. I was the American League rep. He was the National League rep. We went through the ringer together. Uh, we can share stories like nobody else, you know, as far as this goes. We may not be current. We're, n- we're not in the room now with the current negotiations, but we certainly know all the backdrops and all the flavor. And we understand what these guys are going through now, these current executive subcommittee players that are, you know, that are, they're the ones that are, uh, that have to take the responsibility to govern themselves. You need players to govern yourselves because that's the way it works. You have to, you have to run this thing and you have to make decisions. And uh, certainly Glavin, Glavin and I were there and uh, we we could, uh, we could spend, uh, multiple hours talking about labor negotiations. Uh, so he had a lot of good things to say. Let me just get out in front and say this right from the beginning. We are not going to talk about labor and a CBA from now until the end of the negotiations are hopefully a success. But I think since we're at the very beginning of this, this is a really good forum to have David and Tom come together. The two players, like you mentioned, David, were you, you know, you guys were at the forefront of the players union over that last work stoppage. And it's a chance to just educate everyone about what to watch for here in 2021. And plus, Hey, we have Tom Glavin on our show. Like, yeah, we're going to be discussing pitching as well. So we get into a lot of topics with Tom, but right out of the gate, guys, we release episodes every Tuesday. The first official day of the lockout was last Tuesday. So were either of you surprised by what commissioner Manfred said in his letter to the fans or during his press conference in Texas, or even Tony Clark's remarks on the day that the lockout was put in place. Did you gain anything from, from those comments? No, uh, not really. I think it was a swing and a miss on (laughs) Commissioner Manfred's part. I, I, I'm not sure what he's trying to accomplish by that. Uh, You know, certainly trying to send a message as always. uh, But no, I, to me, it's to, you have to, you have to have good faith proposals. The, old th- the whole thing about bargaining is bargaining in good faith and showing good faith. And uh, legally, that, that's a big responsibility for both sides. And that you have to bargain in good faith to a legitimate impasse before the commissioner of baseball can impose work-related rules. But to me, I, I look for good faith things. And, and the, you know, the, it's, it's not a good start the way this thing started out. I, I didn't like the letter. Uh, you know, I thought it was a swing and a miss. Agreed. And uh, anything, we're a long way from the any sort of deadline to get this thing wrapped up in time to start spring training. So until then, it's it's posturing. So I'm I'm not uh, I'm not sweating it too much. Yeah, buckle up. Uh, before we get to Tom, we have the way we start off every show here. David leads us off with something he'd like to say in the opener. So what do we have this week, David? Well, since, since, we have, since we have the great Hall of Famer, Tom Glavin, who also, you know, obviously we're going to talk a little bit about the labor issues, as you said, Justin. And uh, to me, there's one point, of a, uh, you know, a quick point. 
there's a rhythm and a timing to labor negotiations so that when it's time to make a deal, it will, it will present itself, so to speak. And you have to understand it's not just owners versus players. It's owners versus owners. It's really a three-headed battle. I know I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. It's large market owners versus small market owners, and maybe even a, another subfaction in there in the middle markets as well that, that's kind of developing. But it's a three-headed battle at a very minimum. The players have to make a deal with the, with the owners when they decide amongst themselves, you know, what they're willing to live with. So when the large market owners and the small market owners get together and decide what they can live with, then that pr- presents itself as the right timing for the players then to make a deal with the owners. It's almost like they have to, they have to sort out their own issues. I don't, maybe issues, not the right word, but you know, their own conversations before they come out of that faction and go to the table to greet the players. So there's a lot of laundry to do on the side of the league and, and, and the owners. And I think that that creates a lot of the, the topics at hand because it always goes back to the haves and the have nots, right? The large markets and the small markets. It does, you know, and James Smythe and I have talked about this quite a bit in terms of competitive balance. You know, and if you compare baseball to the other sports, it's been pretty good competitive balance wise, the teams that have won the world series. uh, There's lots of different ways to slice and dice it. But uh, if you think, uh, if you haven't watched the American league East and watched the Tampa Bay Rays on their budget, do what they've done over the last few years, you can, (laughs) then you haven't been paying attention because that's a point of contention. And that's where you get the large market versus the small market owners. And Tom Glavin and I get, get into this a little bit in the podcast, so I, I won't spoil it, but, Nonetheless, uh, you know, there's a real issue there and the owners need to find out what they want first and foremost, what they can agree on amongst themselves. And then at that point is when the players can step into the fray and say, okay, now we have a framework. Now let's make a deal and let's get back on the field. All right, let's get to this chat with Tom Glavin. A a great time talking with one of the best left-handed starters of all time. And he really gives us an education. Both of you give us a, a great walk through of what happened in the 90s, how it relates to what's going on today. And then on the pitching side, we get a great lesson in longevity, durability, and a very interesting way on how Tom essentially taught himself how to master the changeup. It was pretty much a grip from God that happened during batting practice. So let, let's get to that. Without further ado, Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Glavin here on Tilt with the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. And when when the three of us were trying to figure out who we'd like to talk to to get it like a real education of what is going on now, how you can tie it back to what was going on when when David was playing, you were at the top of David's mind, and rightfully so. For those that that don't know, Tom was the National League rep for the Players Union in the '90s. David was the American League Union player rep for uh, for that time as well. So you guys worked really close together and and both of you here what memories are, are you you taken back to when you see one another and you think about the work that you two did with donald fear and the players union in the 90s um i, I don't want to speak for david but i get ptsd a little bit when i think about uh those days um uh but no kiddingly um you know look i look at back at that and you know, on the one hand, obviously it was, it was tough. Um, it was tough on us. It was tough on the game. It was tough on the fans. Um, 
everybody lost and, and, you know, there's no way to really um, quantify anybody winning because I think at the end of the day, uh, the game was hurt and it was hurt badly. Um, I think the silver lining of it uh, was here we are now 25 years later and we're having the first work stoppage since then. Uh, and, and I think in large part, and, and David can attest to, um, after the strike in 94, uh, you know, we had another collective bargaining agreement four or five years later, and, and we were dangerously close to going down the road again. Uh, and I think the backdrop of the strike, the backdrop of 9-11, all those things fell into place. And I think we all collectively realized we can't do this again. And, and we didn't. We found a way to get it done. Um, got another collective bargaining agreement and you know here we are 20 plus years later um before we've seen our next work stoppage so i think that's the little bit of the silver lining that went down um i think for me personally uh because people ask me all the time um if could you or would you do something different if you were involved in it today and my answer to that is a resounding yes i would i do way less interviews than i did uh, when I was going through it as a player rep. And, and I say that because I think the mistake I made was I never turned down an interview because I thought if you, if you truly were undecided, if you give me five minutes, I can, I can make you see the player side of things and maybe change your mind. And I think looking back at it, that just wasn't true. Uh, I don't think there were very many people that, that were undecided in terms of uh, who they sided with um, during that work stoppage and, and nothing I said was going to change anything. All I did was put my face out there every day so that when people saw me, they associated me with the problem. And, you know, that, that was hard to undo. It took a while to undo that. But, um, and then lastly, I would say, when you look at this situation, you look at our situation, uh, it seems like here we are 20 plus years later and, and, um, it's essentially the same argument. We're arguing about compensation. We're arguing about salaries. We're arguing about free agency and arbitration and all those things. It's, uh, it's just in a little, little bit different package than it was when David and I went through it. Yeah, so true. You know, we're going to have another little box pop up here, Glav. Uh, it's going to be Rob Manfred. We're going to negotiate this thing right here in front of everybody on our podcast. So this Perfect. is the podcast to come to here. So. That would be something, huh? Just see Rob Manfred's face push up there and pull up yeah, in no, the box. No kidding, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, you're funny. You say, Pete, you know, sort of, you know, you have post-traumatic uh, syndrome from, from the 90s and from that experience. I, I feel for you, Glav. I remember going through it was hard enough. I mean, the anxiety and knowing that the World Series is going to be canceled, uh, that they're going to try to break the union. We had replacement players. We had a real uh, – constituted effort by the owners to rewrite the basic agreement, virtually eliminating any rights that were gained uh, going back to Kurt Flood. So we really had no choice back then but to make our stand, in, in my opinion. I'm proud of what we did, but Glav's right. It was the most difficult thing I've ever been through in, a, in my professional life. Uh, I spent months in Washington lobbying Congress. Uh, we actually did get a bill passed, I think, that has had some impact. I mentioned before on this podcast, it's a, the Kurt Flood Act. We had a mm -hmm. partial repeal of the antitrust exemption that, that I think still, you know, it's never been tested. We don't know what kind of an impact it'll have. We've had 25 years without a labor works, you know, stoppage um, since that point. So we'll see what happens, but I'm with Glab. It was really a, even after everything was over, you know, we had theoretically won the case, Sonia Sotomayor, the, the Supreme Court justice now, then was the National Labor Relor uh, Relations uh, uh, Board uh, 
attorney, you know, uh, justice at that point, and she ruled in our favor, put us back on the field. And when we got back on the field, we all got booed. I know I remember seeing Glav and talking to Glav after that and seeing him get booed on the field immediately in the aftermath when we got back on the field. I certainly did. I was traded immediately one day after I showed up. I got <laughs> traded from the Royals to the Blue Jays, back to the Blue Jays. The Royals wanted nothing to do with me for my union activity. And that's what players go through. And Glav, Glav knows this. We talked about it then. It's even as, as important now that you need some frontline players. You need the prominent players to step up in the leadership roles because there will be repercussions. You will, you know, teams management, uh, they, they do hold grudges. You know, they can come back to, to hurt you and certainly with the fans as well. As Blab said, you know, there was no winning that argument. Uh, you know, both of us were on the wrong end of that one, especially when the World Series had to be canceled. You see something similar like now with Max Scherzer being a prominent face there as a as a future Hall of Fame uh, ace type pitcher who might be a little immune to the kind of retaliation. You know, I, I don't I think it's just easier for veteran guys to be in a leadership role. Um, you know, I know even for me, you know, when I first decided I wanted to do the player rep thing, it was it was really in reaction to the 1990 lockout. Um, you know, I went through that lockout as a young player, uh, Dale Murphy was our player rep and Murph did a great job, but, um, really the thing that resonated with me was I hated not knowing what was going on. I mean, I hated, I hated being home waiting for a phone call, uh, to tell me what was going on and and not really understanding. And I think as a young player, you do have that sense of, well, what can I bring to the table? You know, who's going to listen to me, so to speak. And, and it's really not about that. It's just, it's, um, you know, uh, again, I can't, I can't speak for what's going on today, but um, I think the greatest thing that our union had back then was that our leadership was adamant about players being involved and players being at meetings and players knowing what was going on. So you could hear it firsthand and, uh, and not have to rely on Don Fear or Gene Ors or anybody else to tell you what was going on. They wanted you to th- there to hear it firsthand. And, and I think young players are just generally intimidated by that. And I get it. I understand that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think the veteran players obviously carry a little different presence. Uh, they have a little bit different respect level. Uh, so I think in that sense, it's a little bit easier for veteran players to get involved. Uh, does job security help? Yeah, it probably does. Uh, because again, like David said, uh, you don't know what the repercussions are going to be on you as a player. I don't, I don't, I didn't really uh, have to go through much of that. I mean, I've had people ask me, uh, when I didn't sign back with Atlanta and ended up going to the Mets, well, was that part of the reason that the Braves, you know, wanted you out of town is because your player rep days. I don't really think that was the case. Who knows, but I don't think it was the case, but it's not to say that doesn't happen to guys. You know, David had his own experience, uh, where it happened to him. So I think that all of that lends to the veteran guys being more involved, but at the end of the day, they need the veteran guys really need to be involved because again, they they've lived the game. They understand the game a little bit more. They know how things affect uh, players at different levels of their career. And it's, I think they just carry a little bit more credibility when they're, when they're talking to young guys because they've lived the experience a little bit more. You know, Glad, you bring up a great point when you brought up, you know, the, the lockout book prior to in 1990. Mm-hmm. And really, the, if you go back to that era, one of the big issues there was, uh, you know, the, the arbitration eligibility, whether it was going to be three years. I think the Super 2 section was born in that 90 lockout. It was. Pre- previously, if you remember, back to Fernando Valenzuela, Fernando Valenzuela broke in with a bang with the Dodgers. I mean, there's Fernando Mania. After his second full year, he was eligible for arbitration. 
and he was awarded over a million dollars in his first arbitration case after two years. And that was the big argument back then. And the veteran players back in the 80s and early 90s were less uh, inclined to really worry about the younger players. They really felt like the younger players had to prove their worth. They had to kind of, uh, you know, pay their dues before they were eligible to arbitration. So they weren't as, as focused on that. So they, they gave it up and we, and we moved arbitration back to three years. I think now we see the impact of that mm-hmm. where young players aren't getting paid. The owners know how to manipulate the system with service time manipulation, hold them in the minor leagues a little sooner, a little longer rather. So that really became a big issue. You know, just the difference between two years eligible for arbitration and three years is a big deal because owners have turned that three years into four years. And now you, now you have guys like Aaron judge who are in their sixth year of, of the big leagues at this point and really are, are waiting uh, to, to have what, you know, a, a true market value and trying to get out there and find out what their real value is. And, he's going to be on the wrong side of 30. He's going to be 30 years old by the time that happens. So it's really about control on the arbitration side and control on the free agent side as well. Tom, you mentioned relatively the same stuff is up for, for grabs here. It all comes back to money in some maybe different language or another, but bottom line is it's financial reasons here. For both of you here, take us inside the negotiating room when these talks are happening. Like what's being said what are you guys doing as players? What is the role of, you know, James brought up Max Scherzer. What is the role of a Scherzer or an Andrew Miller in these moments? Um, you know, again, going back to when we went through it, I, I think it was for the most part when we went through it, honestly, it was a really easy fight uh, because it was a salary cap or no salary cap. And, you know, we weren't going to, we were not going to accept the salary cap. Uh, and, and in many ways I look back at it and I wonder, well, I think the salary cap was maybe the maybe the reason for the whole thing, but I think the true intent uh, back then was to break the union, and and I think the salary cap was just an excuse to do that. I think that uh, a lot of the owners back in that day uh, truly despised the players' association, and, and they didn't like our and they wanted to beat the union, and I think uh, they knew the best way for them to get a salary cap was to get the union to break. Uh, and, and that was the only way we were going to do it. We weren't going to agree to it, uh, willingly. So, um, that was it. And it became a prolonged fight, but I think from the player standpoint, that was an easy one to draw the line in the sand on. I mean, it was, it was, you know, right there in front of you, there wasn't any, uh, well, I don't understand how this affects me or how that doesn't affect me. I mean, you know, when you start talking about, uh, arbitration and super twos and nod and then free agency and, you know, it gets, you get in the weeds a little bit sometimes, but the salary cap was easy. It was right there in front of you, black and white. And, and it made for an easy rallying cry for, uh, for us back then. And, and, you know, again, I think the biggest role for the players, uh, when we went through it, and I think today it's still true is you, you have to be involved. Players have to be involved because, the players ultimately have to know what's going on. And I think that was a critique of our union uh, unfairly um, during our days was that, you know, we were, uh, we were all puppets and Don Fair was the puppeteer and he was leading us around. And, and that couldn't have been further from the truth. Um, we had tremendous involvement. We had guys that were engaged. That doesn't mean that, you know, when you go to a meeting as a player and, and you start talking about some of the economics and the technicalities, it doesn't mean you understand everything that's going on. But then that becomes the role of your leadership to sit you down and explain to you what's going on and, and how and why that affects you. And uh, I think our union was great at that. And, and you know, again, Coney can attest to this, too. We would 
we would have meetings and we would break out into our session and go over what just went on. And Don would explain everything to us and then would kind of look at each other like, all right, now, Michael Weiner, uh, God rest his soul. It's your turn. Now speak to us in English and tell us what the hell's going on. And that was kind of the dynamic. And it was a really good dynamic. And um, what it did was it helped us, like I said, number one, to be involved in the process uh, without being intimidated, but at, at the same time, also truly understand what was happening. Because look, I, would, I couldn't sit here and say that when you're sitting in some of these meetings and you're hearing some of these proposals, you're sitting in your mind and you're going, well, why doesn't that make sense? And what's wrong with that? And then when you sit down with your own people and they kind of explain to you why they don't like it and, and what could potentially be the repercussions of that, well, okay, now as a player, you're armed with something that you can actually wrap your hands around and say, okay, well, I understand now why that's a bad idea. I see that. Um, and if you didn't feel that way, then we were more than we were, we were more than allowed to, to clap back a little bit and say, hey, well, wait a minute, we don't, you know, we don't like that or we don't like the way that's going or, or what have you. So it was a really good dynamic. But, um, you know, again, I think first and foremost, the involvement of the players is crucial, both from the understanding of what's going on, but then to be able to, to turn around and talk to your fellow players and explain what's going on. Because it'll happen probably in this, just like it happened with us, uh, if this thing goes on long enough, and I suspect it will, because there's no reason for them to come to a solution anytime soon, but you'll get players that don't really pay attention and then they'll say something stupid and it'll cost you two or three weeks in the process. Uh, but that's why it's so important for guys to be involved so you can stave off as much of that as you possibly can. So true. You're bringing back so many good memories, Dan, <laughs> bad memories too, Tom. Yeah. Right. I mean, the thing you have to understand is that there is an executive subcommittee. So, you know, the American League rep, the National League rep, and then other elected officials that make up anywhere from eight to a dozen players will do the majority of the inside uh, baseball negotiations. We'll be more involved. We'll give up more of their time. And then it's incumbent upon them to get back to the player reps of each individual team and then interpret everything that Tom just did, described perfectly about what's going on. Uh, why isn't that a good proposal? Why is it a bad proposal? What is our stance? What are we trying to do here? So it can be anxiety ridden for, for the players on the executive subcommittee. Um, you know, Tom and I were part of the group. You know, you want, you want to talk about uh, a negotiating session, what it was like. We were called to the White House. President mm -hmm. Clinton at the time called us to the White House to try to solve this uh, situation. So Bud Selig and the commissioner was on one side of the table with all of his uh, his cohorts. And then it was kind of me and Glav as the American and National League rep, along with um, several other uh, executive subcommittee guys that were called into the White House. We were in the Roosevelt Room. Uh, we heard the spiel. President, actually Al Gore, Vice President Gore took the lead that particular night and really had a pretty good understanding of the issues on both sides. And then we'd break off into little meetings, negotiating meetings in the White House. Glav and I would go in with George Stepanopoulos and and talk to him uh, along with Al Gore about what we wanted. And then there'd be side meetings back and forth. It was a remarkable night. At the end of the night, nothing got done. <laughs> and we, we spent six hours in the White House that night. We were really hopeful that maybe there would be, you know, maybe at least a binding arbitration that would be agreed to on both sides. Uh, the players, we agreed, to, we agreed to binding arbitration that night. The owners didn't want to do the whole whole thing in binding arbitration. They, they wanted to just do... Uh, you know, the, the labor side or the, the, the CBA side, you know, just with regard to the major league side. So, you know, it gets really complicated. But yeah, that particular negotiation session, and that's something I'll never forget, being with Glav in the White House that night, <laughs> trying to get something done over six hours, talking to President Clinton, talking to Vice President Gore, and 
you know, uh, and it, it was a stress-filled night. But it's what tonight I'll never forget. You walk away with nothing. Did you guys at least get a tour? <laughs> yes. Yeah, did. I'll tell you what, it was funny because I remember that. I, I mean, that was a really strange night um, in the sense that um, I, I remember being in my hotel room and I was, I was getting ready to leave to go to the airport to go home because the, the, the meetings we had were over. Uh, we knew that we kind of had jumped off the cliff, so to speak. This was in December, I think, Coney, if I'm not mistaken. So yes. we knew that, all right, we're done. This thing is done. It's going into next year uh, like we had fallen into the abyss. So that was kind of the last ditch effort to try and truly get something done. And I was getting ready to go back to Atlanta. I got a phone call. I was like, Hey, you got to be downstairs in 20 minutes. We're going to the white house. And I'm thinking I got nothing to wear. I, I mean, I'm, I'm out of clothes. And I remember getting ridiculed by somebody in one of the Boston newspapers that I showed up at the white house without a tie on. I'm like, dude, I'm lucky I had a pair of underwear to wear because it was, <laughs> this thing was, we were, had been there for a few days now and it was, we were going home. So it truly was, Hey, get over, get downstairs. We're going to the white house. And um, like Coney said, it was, uh, it was pretty remarkable. I remember sitting there at one point in time, we were talking uh, college basketball with president Clinton. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was really surreal in that regard, but yeah, you go in there thinking naively looking back at it now that, Oh my God, we're going to the white house. They're really going to put some pressure on us and something's really going to happen tonight. And, and nothing happened. It was just, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a dog and pony show, but it was a really cool experience for us. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, president Clinton point and we were in the Roosevelt room and he pointed up to the picture of Roosevelt and he said, He's the one who invented the bully pulpit. And that's what we're yeah. trying to do tonight. I have, I have <laughs> yeah. no authority to really help you guys, but I admire you for sticking together. And I'm going to do the best, uh, you know, best thing I can do with what, what's with what I'm armed with, which is the bully pulpit. So uh -huh. if you want to understand what the bully pulpit was, we got an education that night. So, Tom, you mentioned a lot of people have mentioned there's no real urgency in early December for either side to come to the table and talk things out and negotiate a new deal. So judging by what we know, how far away are both sides here from being in the right frame of mind to make a deal? I mean, I don't really get, look, I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I hope it's different, but you know, when you start, you know, the whole reason for lockouts and strikes is to put pressure on the situation to try and get something done because you've had time to get something done and nothing's gotten done. So now you got to start exerting your pressure points. Uh, you know, so obviously the lockout was the first step. And, um, you know, I've read a lot, of, uh, not a lot, but I read a few articles where, you know, people are surmising that the, you know, the owners uh, pulled the trigger on the lockout because they weren't going to allow for another strike and losing another postseason. Uh, and, and I get it. So there's strategy in what you're doing. Um, you, you, you try not to do these things until you get to a point where you're trying to maximize whatever leverage you have pressure wise. So, um, you know, there was a little bit of pressure, obviously, uh, with the free agency period uh, being in full swing. And I think you, that's the reason why you saw some teams that were really active and others that kind of stayed on the sidelines waiting to see uh, what new rules we were going to be playing under. So uh, I think you saw a mixed bag in terms of how teams reacted to the free agency period. But um, I, I don't really see there being much of a sense of urgency until at least after the holidays. Um, maybe you know, arguably maybe the middle of January, um, if you truly don't want to miss any of spring training, but, um, I, I would say realistically, probably the, the point of, of kind of really starting to get some pressure is going to be the first of February. 
because that's going to be kind of a really compact period. Uh, if you were to get an agreement on February the 1st, uh, there's still a lot of free agents out there. There's still a lot of teams that haven't addressed issues and to have to do that in a quick two week period before guys start to report um, that, that can, that can be a little bit stressful for the team. So um, I really don't see much happening before the 1st of February. Yeah, you know, I agree, Tom. I think the, the owners probably view that as an asset, kind of a frenzied period for a mm-hmm. month, you know, and drive down prices potentially. Your players getting anxious and desperate a little bit. Uh, you know, I could say this. It seems like you have to be on the inside to understand what's really going on. And Tom and I, you know, we're, we're talking about the mid-90s as opposed to what's going on now. But back then, there was two different frameworks, as Tom said. There wasn't even a framework to get a deal. There was the, the salary cap framework that the owners were talking about, and there was a player side framework, and they were – nowhere near each other. I, you kind of get the feeling now that there is a framework there in place. It, 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 certainly the, the players have some freedom issues. They want arbitration sooner. They want free agency sooner. They, they want to do something about getting the younger players paid uh, sooner so that the veteran players are actually be, be protected a little bit. Uh, the, the, that fourth outfielder or that veteran 33-year-old player, relief pitcher, has been marginalized because you can go down and pay uh, – Minimum wage to to a rookie coming up now, or at least that's more desirable in a lot of cases. So, you know, the veteran players that have really paid their their dues are getting kind of squeezed out. Certainly, uh, uh, they don't feel like they're getting their true value. So the only way to do that is to, to deal with freedom issues, get get the younger players paid a little bit more. Max Scherzer's alluded to that. So so that that's a question on how 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 close the players are, whether they're really together to push for that kind of radical change or not, but. You know, you have to understand there's a rhythm and a timing to labor deals. And it's not just the players against the owners. It's owners versus owners. It's a three-headed battle. It's small market owners versus large market owners. And if you remember, if you've read about that first offer the owners threw this year, it included a salary floor. It, it brought down the luxury tax in the $180 million range, but brought a salary floor up in the $100 million range. Well, that's not the players asking for a $100 million salary floor. That's the large market owners who are worried about, you know, hey, wait a minute, where's my revenue sharing money going? Uh, these, these small market teams aren't spending it on payroll. Uh, maybe they're pocketing it. I don't know. Maybe they're using it to build up their minor league systems. I and mean, that's a big question. But the ask, the original ask is telling who asked for the $100 million salary floor in, in the owner's uh, last offer. Uh, to me, that, that was a large market owner. So you have a battle between the large market and small market owners before you even get to the players. So it really is a three-headed battle that creates a rhythm and a timing to the negotiation so that when it's time to get a deal, the players will know that the large market owners and the small market owners have gotten together and, and uh, they're ready to make a deal. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to piggyback that for a second. And, and David's right. Um, that was one of the things that I remember um, vividly that I didn't quite understand uh, when I first got involved. But, our, you know, I remember our leadership telling us, listen, guys, um, you know, you, you got to be careful with your negotiating because a lot of times you end up in a point where you're negotiating against yourself because the, the other side just kind of sitting there on their hands uh, because they're not ready to make a deal yet. And I remember our guys telling us, listen, a deal is going to happen when the time is right. And there's nothing you can do to, to force that timeline. Um, and that was true. That was, that was very true. Uh, and to David's point too, it, it, it is, there is a dynamic of that battle on the owner's side between the, between the, the large market teams and the small market teams. And it's been a battle that's been going on for a long, long time. Uh, and I think it's getting 
maybe even a little bit more exacerbated now because you know you, you look at the American League East for as an, a great example, right? You got the Red Sox and the Yankees that are constantly paying uh, luxury taxes to the revenue pool so they can get a, let a team like Tampa Bay start to beat them now every year. And they're saying, wait a minute, <laughs> why am I why am I financing these guys to go out here and beat us? You know, so there is that dynamic that um, they have to resolve some of those issues on their own side uh, before you really start to see some meaningful negotiations. We got one more on this subject because look, this is this is a pitching podcast. We have a Hall of Famer on here. We don't want to talk about this junk all day. But legal strategies aside, from both of your experiences with this. What, what can each side do to ensure that not one single game is canceled in 2022? Go ahead, Coney. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that question can be the answer. Yeah. I can tell you the truth. I mean, uh, it's both sides are committed. I, I'll give you that. You know, um, the one thing that you have on the owner side, you have some of the wealthiest people in the world that are represented on the owner side. The management side has a, uh, an army of economists, an army of labor lawyers. You are really up against it. The Players Association has always been a small operation. Uh, maybe one or two lead negotiators. Uh, they have a pretty good staff, but they are dwarfed by the resources on the management side and the owner side. So, you know, when, when you're looking at that side of it, well, you, you, it, it, it can be a little intimidating when you're on the player side. So you know, where do you draw the line in the sand? Uh, how do you prepare yourselves? What sort of signals do you send? I think the signal the Players Association has sent so far this year is pretty good. It's similar to the 90s when we stockpiled our licensing money and held back revenue from the players so that if you do get into an extended work stoppage and a player has a car payment or a mortgage payment, that he can call the Players Association and actually dip into the pool, the strike fund, or the sort of licensing money revenue that's been held behind that's formed this fund. That gives you a little bit of protection, and they've done that this time. So they've sent all the right signals that they're serious they're digging their heels in, but this is nowhere near the 90s. You know, as I said, when there were two completely different frameworks involved, uh, it seems like there's a framework there this time, but there are some control issues that need to be dealt with. And uh, there's some creative ideas out there. And whether you tie free agency to uh, a, it's sort of an age, if it's age related, an age basis, or there's some really smart people coming up with ideas about how you deal with service time manipulation, how you get more revenue to the younger players and maybe get a little more equitable distribution so that some of the veteran players get protected and, and get to know what their true worth is too. Uh, when they played so hard their whole career, now the sudden, you know, all of a sudden you're 33, 34 years old, you still have a lot to offer and you're marginalized. You're out of the game. You know, you're signing minor league contracts because uh, there's cheap labor out there on the rookie side. Yeah. I, mean, I agree with everything David said. I think that uh, again, different from when we went through it, um, in the, in the strike year, I, I think the framework for a deal is way closer than anything we had, uh, until we were absolutely forced to get something done or, or until the, um, the judgment came down in our favor with, in our favor with, uh, judge Sotomayor. Um, you know, that was strictly, that, that was almost looking back at it. Like, you know what, we're, we're going to fight and we're going to fight to the end. And, uh, the end happened to be a court ruling in our favor, uh, but there was never really any serious um, negotiation, so to speak, in terms of a framework for a deal. I think these guys are a lot closer. No question about that. Um, I think the framework, by and large, is there because they're not really talking about um, blowing up the system, so to speak. You know, they're still talking about 
thresholds and service time. And, and I think a lot of the things, like I say, that we talked about before, but the framework for those discussions are there, but it, it's going to be tricky. I mean, um, you know, the whole notion of, of um, how you protect the younger players and have them make money. Um, we, we, we went through that as well. Um, and, and it was uh, a lot of times it was at least um, addressed with, minimum salary increases. Uh, we addressed it with the super two arbitration. Um, so some of those things help, but, um, you know, it, it, for fans out there, you know, I know, I know maybe it, it sounds like you're, you're arguing over pity uni things, but you know, when you start talking about, about guys making money and free agency and all that stuff, I mean, you naturally look at the huge contracts that are being thrown out there. Um, those are not the norm in baseball. You know, the average baseball career is still only three or four years long. So a lot of these guys who are pretty good players never make it to the point where they become free agents and actually have a big payday. Um, and so, you, you know, guys rightly are trying to address that. And in today's game, um, it's even far more different because uh, if I remember correctly, I, seen, I feel like we had the same argument when David and I were playing, but, was, but it was more the middle-class guy. The middle-class guy was getting squeezed out of the game. You had, you had the young guys who, who were making major league minimum, and then you had your older guys who were free agents that were making money on the back end, and it was the middle guy that gets squeezed out. Now it's shifted a little bit to where those guys, those older guys are the guys that are getting squeezed out. And, and those guys, unless they're established superstars, are not getting those big free agent contracts at 30 years old anymore because the game's not, not allowing for it. You know, with all the analytics that are in the game now, uh, it's rare that a 30-year-old guy is going to go out there and get a big contract anymore. So uh, there are some nuances that I think are going to be interesting to see how they do get worked out inevitably. Um, but again, I think the framework is much more there for a deal than, than when, when we went through it during the strike. Well, Tom mentioned the A word right at the end there. And I think that segues beautifully into the pitching side of things here. He mentioned analytics. And one of the, one of the things I'm curious about is how he would kind of take to the analytical game here in, in 2021. But David, you worked closely with Tom off the field and you competed with him on the highest levels on the field. What stands out to you about Tom Glavin, the Hall of Fame pitcher? Uh, so much, you know, I, you know, I use this example a lot. I, you know, we'll get into the changeup because I consider Tom Glavin the maybe the foremost changeup master in, in, in the game today. Just the nuances just within that pitch. It's not just a grip or a changeup. It's how he could, he had finesse with that pitch. He had a slower one, a slower one. He could throw one for a strike. You know, he just had so many variables off of that pitch. But for me, Tom, it was really the endurance and the durability. I mean, now, when I look at your career, 682 <laughs> career starts. How did you do that? I mean, that is a, it's a 12th most in the history of the game. It's an enormous number. 682 starts. Not one relief appearance either. No. 682 games started in the big leagues, 12 most in the big leagues. It was, to uh, me, that says, that says a lot. How the hell did you do that? It was a lot of cortisone shots and um, some dose packs and, uh, you know, all those things to keep me going. Um, look, I, I was lucky to some extent, right? Um, I'm not going to say I was injury free my whole career, but uh, thankfully the only surgeries I required until I got to my last year of playing were all below the waist, uh, you know, knees, ankles, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I had nagging shoulder stuff from time to time. I remember I had a, um, 
a partial thickness tear in, in after 92 that I pitched with in 1993 and, and into 94. Um, you know, that was one of those things that I, you know, they told me straight up, look, you got two choices. You can have surgery and fix it and be done for a year. Uh, or you can try to pitch with it. You're not going to do any more damage, but if you can stand the pain, uh, then you can pitch with it. And, you know, obviously like I know Coney, you would have done the same thing. It's like, well, let me try, let me try and pitch with it. And, um, you know, I, I lost some velocity and it was a tough year physically, a year and a half physically, like I said, no, you know, not completely kidding, but, you know, there was a vicious, vicious cycle at times of getting cortisone shots and, and trying to keep that cycle of pain at bay as best I could. But for the most part, um, you know, arm wise, it was just some nagging stuff here and there and, and maybe a few times where I probably shouldn't have pitched, but I did. Um, but I just think that was that was the mentality. You know, it's you pitch once every five days when it's your dirt, when it's your turn to pitch, go out there, get out there, figure something out. Um, you know, I always felt like me at. 80% was better than the guy I was going to be facing most of the time. So I'm going to take my chances. And, and, you know, I think more than anything else, it was just a, it was a pride thing, you know, like that's my job. And, and when it's my turn to go out there and pitch, I'm going to go out there and pitch and it might not be great some nights, but um, come hell or high water. That's, that's my day. You, you know, you're going to have to tackle me to keep me from going out there. So, um, you know, that was, that was the only option. Yeah, glad. You know, we've got, uh, you know, Justin Shackle, who's, who's our host here, and James Smythe, who I work with on the Yes Network, uh, who's uh, kind of a historian, a master researcher. And I'm going to get him in here to kind of, uh, you know, peel back the layers of your career a little bit and give you a little different look. But I, I can tell you this, and I'll start you off with one story going back to the beginning. Uh, you know, I, obviously, you and I competed against each other in the 80s. I was with the Mets. You're, you're, uh, your seven and seventeen year, nineteen eighty eight. I remember uh, playing against you. You started against the Mets. Strawberry took you deep. I think you gave up five runs that day. It's nineteen eighty eight, maybe August East, mm -hmm. circa somewhere there. But you really threw the ball well that game. And I remember Strawberry coming on the bench after you know after that home run said, you know what, I, I got that pitch, but this guy's going to be a good pitcher. You know, we saw it back then in eighty eight when you were going seven and seventeen, and then three years later, I guess ninety one, you had a monster year. You ended up winning yep. the Cy Young Award, which set, set you on on pace to win, I think, three three or four years in a row, 20-game win uh, type season, but you really kind of established yourself. So at this point, James Smythe, you know, can you give me a little perspective on Mr. Glavin here and peel back some layers and give us some conversation topics? Oh, sure. Um, well, uh, Tommy, 305 career wins, uh, one of 24 pitchers uh, in the 300-win club and one of only six lefties. And, uh, David, you mentioned the, uh, the season in 88, uh, with an ERA over four and a half and a seven and 17 record. Uh, it really reminded me a bit of um, we've had the, the last couple of weeks, we've had our two Cy Young winners this year, Robbie Ray and Corbin Burns, two guys that that had struggles early in their career and they've turned things around and, and have had Cy Young seasons. And I think um, there's a similar thread there with, uh, with Tom and um, to show that it's, you know, that it's always a work in progress and with any young pitcher, a struggle can turn into success very quickly. Um, and with Tom's career, not just the, the, the longevity and the 300 wins averaging 33 starts a season for 20 years, which is mind boggling. Uh, the two Cy Youngs, as Coney mentioned, 91 and 98, uh, and the, uh, 10 time all-star four time silver slugger. So getting it done at the plate too. Yeah. Don't um, forget that one. Yeah, of course. And, Jake's uh, the long ball, yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> and uh, and 
interesting that uh, I know that you guys were both uh, booed upon coming back to the field in 95, but uh, as great an ending as you could possibly have in a season to uh, come back in 95, win the World Series and win World Series MVP with a, with a game for the ages in, in game six, a one nothing win in Atlanta. Yeah, that, that was um, that was a good end of that year. I remember when we came back from the strike, like we were talking about, um, you know, my first start was in Atlanta. Uh, and, and it was in the old ballpark, uh, Fulton County Stadium. We had the bullpens were down uh, the foul lines. Uh, and I remember warming up before that game and people screaming and yelling at me. And one dude, which ended up I thought was pretty funny, um, was screaming at me, you know, the greedy player or whatever. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to help you out. I'm going to start passing the hat. And he did. He passed the hat around the people in the stands collecting money. And then they threw it down uh, on the mound at me and in and, and disgust. Uh, which, like I said, it was pretty funny, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, to end the season that way with a world series championship, uh, it couldn't have, couldn't have gone any better, but, you know, I look back on my career and, and it's funny now being, being a broadcaster and, and seeing the game from a different way now and, and, and hearing the things that are talked about, you know, I, I hear so often in today's game, uh, when they talk about pitchers and they talk about how, you know, the, the, the pitching coach needs to get with him and do this. And, 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 you know, people need to tell him to work on this in the winter and that. And I just think to myself how, how crazy that is to hear, uh, because to me, I didn't need somebody to tell me what I needed to do better. You know, like if, if, if you don't know that, then you're kind of already starting out behind the eight ball. And, you know, when I look back at that season where I lost 17 games, you know, the one thing that stuck out at, stuck out at me first and foremost was the Braves must have really liked something in me if they let me stay out there all year long and lose 17 games and never sent me down. Right. So that, that was first and foremost. And people will ask me all the time, well, you know, do you think you should have spent another year in the minor leagues? And, and my answer is no, because I could have gone down to the minor leagues and had a good year and I would have not learned nearly what I learned that year in the big leagues, not only about pitching, but about myself, you know, um, much of my demeanor that people always talked about with me on the mound and you couldn't tell if I was winning 10, nothing or lose 10, nothing. It came from that year. You know, I, I learned how to deal with it. Now I'm not saying, Hey, you need to go out there and learn how to be a loser, but you need to learn how to deal with failure. And, and the sooner you learn how to deal with failure, particularly in our game, then the better chance you have. But I, I think after that year, it, it was painfully obvious to me first and foremost that I needed to throw more strikes. That was the bottom line. You know, when I went out there and I threw strikes and I pitched ahead in the count and I had my A stuff, those are the games that I pitched well. And when I didn't, I had no chance. And the second half of the year, that year, I actually pitched pretty good. My ERA uh, was about a run better the second half of that year. So there was some progress being made. But my point is, all I did that winter when I went home was work on fastball command. That's all I did. And I came back the next year and I had a good year. Um, and then I kind of had what a lot of players do where you start with that kind of that roller coaster. And, and the thing that I've always said in baseball, the hardest thing to do is be consistent. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to go out there and have one good year. Uh, it's a, one thing to go out there and have a bad year. But when you can go out there year after year and get to the point where your manager can pencil in what he expects out of you, that's hard to do. And it's hard to achieve that. And I knew for me, I knew for me in order to do that, uh, in order to reach that consistency, it started with me. I had to learn how to throw strikes more. And, and I did that. Um, then it became obvious I needed to learn how to win games that I probably shouldn't win. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy to go out there and win when you have your a game, but you should pitch a good game when you have your a game 
But what are you going to do when you have your B game or your C game? Right. I mean, I always felt like if, I, if I'm going to go out there five, if we're going to break it down into five start increments, probably one, maybe two at most out of those five. Am I going to have my A game? You know, the other three times something's not right. You either maybe you feel like crap. Maybe your fastball command's not real good. Your secondary pitch isn't that good on a given night or what you just don't have good feel, whatever it is. But guess what? You got to go out there and pitch, man. So you, <laughs> you better figure something out. You know, and and I think once I once I started to learn how to do that, that's when things really took off for me. And, and, and I think the big reason I was able to do that was my change up. Once once I really got that change up and got it going and I had a secondary pitch that I could really lean on, um, then it made it easier for me to pitch in those games where I didn't have my best stuff because I always had that pitch in my back pocket. And if I didn't, then there was a good chance either my fastball command was really good or my breaking ball was better on a given night. Um, but I think that was, those were the two keys. Once, once I, you know, or three keys, I learned how to throw more strikes. I developed that change up and then that gave me the confidence to go out there and pitch games when I knew I wasn't very good, but still find a way to keep the team in it and win. Who taught you how to throw the change up? It was a mistake. Truth be told, um, you know, I was I was a circled changeup guy like I started out in the minor leagues, you know, funny story. I was in double A ball pitching and I was throwing a fork ball. And, and, and for me, that fork ball was nasty. Like I'd, I'd throw that thing 52 feet and guys in double A would swing at it. So I, I thought it was the greatest pitch ever. And later in that season or, or middle of that season, before I ended up getting called up that year at triple A, um, Earlier in the season, Ned Yost had gotten released by the Royals and the Braves signed him to come to Greenville to catch me and Pete Smith and a couple of other prospects. And I remember one night after a game, I think in Memphis, uh, and I had a bunch of strikeouts and we're sitting on the back of the bus. And I said to Ned, I said, Ned, I said, Ned, that fork ball is nasty tonight, wasn't it? And he just kind of laughed at me and he looked at me. He's like, that pitch sucks. <laughs> I was like, what? What do you like? I was crushed. He said, nobody in the big leagues is swinging at that pitch. He said, you need to learn how to throw a circle changeup. And I was crushed a little bit, but it, you know, I was always one of those guys that like my dad told me when I walked out the door to go play ball, he said, listen, you're going to have a lot of people telling you what to do and it doesn't cost you anything to listen to them, but you got to figure out what works for you. And I remembered that conversation vividly and not to the point where, Hey, I scrapped the fork ball that next day, but I remembered it. And I thought, you know what? I need to learn how to throw a circle changeup or a change straight changeup. So I started with the circle changeup and it was an okay pitch for me. Um, when I threw it right, it was good. When I didn't, it wasn't. And most of the time when I didn't throw it right, I threw it too hard. So as Coney knows, as a pitcher, when you're worrying about the velocity on an off-speed pitch, you start manipulating arm speed and start doing all those things. You give it away. Uh, that was my problem. And I was shagging in the outfield one day in spring training uh, and a ball rolled up to me and I picked it up barehanded and it settled in my hand on my middle finger and my ring finger. And I thought that feels pretty good, you know? And so for the rest of batting practice, every time I got a ball, I would throw it that way. And it so happened that I had a, a side session the next day and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to try it. And I, when I went over to the bullpen the next day, the good ones were really good. And I was like, oh, man, I might have something here. And so I stuck with it. And then it just became, over time, um, uh, you know, an exercise in getting consistent with it, then getting confident with it, and then ultimately getting to the point where, you know, I threw it anytime, anywhere. It didn't matter. It was my pitch. Uh, but it was, it was by accident that I came up with that grip.
it, it's to me, you know, Justin and James, it, it's brilliant. And I, I think we I, right here, I got to stop right here because this is the perfect part of your young pitcher. You're trying to learn how to throw a changeup. This guy had one of the best in the history of the game. And it's really a two-seam fastball. You know, Glavin and I were teammates. People don't realize I played with the, on the Mets in 2003. I only lasted six weeks. You know, I didn't have anything left. Glav had about four years left at that point. But nonetheless, I got a chance to talk to, to Glav, and I was blown away the way he described learning that changeup. And it's basically you're trading your ring finger, which is a weaker finger, uh, for your pointer finger, which is a stronger finger. And if you do the strength test – you can see, you know, this, this ring finger is a lot weaker than your index finger. So you just learn a two-seam fastball with these middle two fingers, your ring finger and your middle finger, and you just throw it. Mm-hmm. And Glab perfected that to, to the point where it seemed like he, he could finesse it, too. He could take a little bit off, 3-1, behind in the count. I need to throw one for a strike. Oh, wait a minute. This is a finished pitch. I've got 0-2. Maybe I can turn it over. I can finesse it a little bit, make it take a little bit off, make it fade a little bit more. There's the secret sauce that Glav had. It was such a simple grip that it allowed him to kind of learn the finesse game with that pitch. And it was almost like three or four different pitches within one grip for me. At least that's the way I observed the Glav. And I'm, I'm sure you could probably expound on that a little further. It was. Um, and, and I think for me, again, it was just the point of, of, of practice, right? Um, you know, you, you start out with a pitch like that, like any pitch, and, you, and, and your focus first and foremost is trying to throw for strikes. Um, and when I started, when I got to the point where I could throw it for strikes and understand and understood why I was, um, then it became a little bit easier to kind of expand on it. And, you know, again, once you get to the point where you're, you're solid with your mechanics and you feel like you can repeat your mechanics, every pitch, um, now it's, it's not an issue of, well, why did I throw that pitch poorly? Was it mechanical? Did I do this? Did I do that? Um, you know, you have that confidence in what you're doing. So for me, once I realized or I got to the point where I could throw it for strikes, then it became, okay, well, now I got a two-strike pitch. Let me, let me practice expanding the zone. Let me expand it a little bit more. Uh, let me start throwing it maybe over the plate a little bit more, but knowing it's going to finish down out of the strike zone. And for me, it was, not a pitch that, it was not a pitch that I tried to throw for strikes. I always tried to throw it to a point. You know, my, my, my point, my, my aiming point when I was trying to throw it for a strike was the catcher's foot. It was his right foot that was outside the outside corner. That's what I was trying to hit. And if I knew if I threw it there, I was going to end up knee high or so for a strike. Now, obviously you want to expand that. We'll lower your sights a little bit more. Try to throw it, you know, a ball behind home plate. All right. You want it off the plate a little bit more. All right. We'll start it, you know, a ball behind the plate and outside his foot and let it run some more. So, I mean, it was, it was really just an exercise in trying to figure out where my starting points were, knowing that if I, if I threw it, started it where I wanted to, it was going to end up in a certain place. Um, and then it really, you know, it just like, I, like I said, or have, maybe I didn't say it, but, you know, I was always the kind of guy that I didn't tinker with things, but I always wanted to do things better. Or I always wanted to add a little bit. Right. And forever, I was told, well, you're a lefty and you can't throw your change up to lefties. And even when it was good for a long time, I didn't do it. And, and, and I didn't have great success against left-handed hitters. Now, granted, I think some of that is skewed because a, the lefties I faced were some of the best hitters in baseball. Those are the guys, those were the lefties that were in the lineup and B I didn't face many of them. So, you know, if I gave up a few hits, I didn't have that many at bats against me. So the average was going to be able to, the splits were always a little bit skewed. I thought, but I finally got to the point where I was like, wait a minute, you're, this is my best pitch. 
And you're telling me I can't use it against the lefty. Why? Just because that's what people say, you know? And, and to me, it was like, listen, this is my career. I'm the one that's not getting lefties out, so I'm going to start doing it. And I remember the first guy I did it against was Lenny Dykstra. And I remember I got to, a, I don't know, a 2-1 count or something like that, fastball count. And I was like, okay, here we go. And I threw it, and he rolled over, hit a soft little ground ball to second base. And I remember looking in the dugout at Leo and kind of gave him the, see? You know, and, and I, uh, he told me, he said, you know, Bobby asked me what that pitch was, and I told him it was a changeup. And he looked at me like, what the hell is he doing throwing changeups to lefties? He's like, well, that's what he's going to do. And I did. And, and then, you know, from there, I expanded it to where, you know, I, I was never, I always was envious, could never do it. Um, watching Maddox pitch, when he would throw that front door sinker to a left handed hitter where it just started at his elbow and they would give up and it would run right back over the plate for a strike. I could never do that with my sinker to a righty. I just, I just couldn't do it. You know, I had a decent sinker away to a lefty, but with a right-hander hitter in the box, it just messed up my whatever, do it. So I thought, I wonder if I can do that with a changeup. And so I said, all right, I'm going to try it, and I'll be damned. That turned out a changeup, inside changeup to a right-hand hitter. Turned out to be a, a really good pitch to me, for me. Um then expanded it to, you know what, if I can, you know, if I can throw that change up down on the way to a righty, how about if I throw that into a lefty? Because that was something I always struggled with too, from time to time was trying to get, as you know, arm side, trying to get a fastball in arm side guys struggle with it. I thought, well, what if I, I know my change up's going to run. I know if I throw it where I want to, it's going to run and it's going to be in off the plate. What's the best I can do with a hit, like a hit a foul ball. And I remember asking Freddie McGriff one day in spring training, I was like, dude, what do you think about change ups to a lefty in? And he's like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I was like, well, why? He's like, well, I'll crush it. And I said, you probably will, but can you keep it fair? And he's, you know, he kind of looked at me. And so sure enough, later that's, you know, a couple of days later in spring training, I was throwing batting practice to him. And I threw him three or four of them and I'll be damned. He smoked them, but he hit them all a hundred yards foul down the right field foul line. I was like, okay, there we go. So, I mean, it would, I had the confidence in that pitch to do it, but my point in that is, you know, again, I see so many young guys today, um, you know, that was my decision, right? That was my career. That was stuff that I thought, you know what, why can't I do this? You know, I'm going to try. Why not? What, what harm is there in trying? Right. Um, and it was the kind of thing, like I said, for me that I never, I didn't, I didn't, like I said, I didn't tinker a lot, but I was always trying to add what I had. And, and make it a little bit better, a little bit more, um, a little bit harder for guys to figure out exactly what I was doing, especially later in my career um, when the strike zone changed a little bit and I had to pitch inside more. Um, but it was fun. And, and I just think that too often um, a lot of guys that I see in today's game just get too caught in, in what they're doing and don't, and don't challenge themselves uh, to see if they can do a little bit more with what they have. Tom, when I grew up and first saw you pitch, I was probably eight or nine years old. And this is in the mid nineties. And the first, and this is when I, you know, kind of good grasp of what was going on in the game. You know, I was just seeing what my eyes were telling me. And I saw this guy and I said, this guy doesn't look like he's trying too hard. <laughs> and that is always what stood out to me with your delivery, how effortless it looked. It was so smooth and fluid and just easy on the eyes. What kind of work went into mastering those mechanics with your delivery? 
you know, I guess in, in layman's terms, it's, it's the, uh, it's the 10,000 hour theory, right? It's, it's just practice. Um, you know, it, it's like, I used to tell people all the time. And in fact, I, it, it's funny, I, I would have this discussion with Smolty all the time because, you know, Smolty would be like, Oh, you don't even go out there and try. You're not even sweating. You're whatever. I'm like, John, just cause I don't throw as hard as you doesn't mean I'm not working as hard as you. I mean, that that's it for me. That's what I got. And, you know, I, I said that, it's, it may not look like it, but trust me, I'm working hard. Now it's not a hundred percent effort level because that's what I did early in my career. And I realized, you know, if I back off a tick and I'm at 95 effort level or 96 effort level, and I can throw the ball 88 instead of 91 and I know where it's going, then that's probably going to be a good thing. And that's what I learned how to do. And, you know, about four or five times a game inside to a right-handed hitter, I'd let one fly at hundred percent and maybe hit 90, but uh, I knew I knew effort level where the ball was going to go, but it was it was just it was more it was just practice. It was repetition. And, and I think the best thing that ever happened to me was, you know, early in my career, I did what everybody did. We threw one start in between uh, or one bullpen in between starts. And that was it. Um, and when Leo and Bobby took over in 1990, um, that was Leo's thing. Leo's like, listen, we're going to throw two times in between starts. And, and look at that time, my arm wasn't great. And I looked at him and I said, you're crazy. I said, my arm already hurts and you want me to throw more. Uh, and he said, I'm telling you, it, it's going to, a, it's going to make your arm feel better and you're going to get better command and you're going to get a better feel on your pitches. And it was true. And, you know, it was just simply getting on the mound more often and, and getting on the mound at 60, 70% effort level and still make, making the ball spin the way you wanted it to spin and do the things that you wanted it to do um, at, at that effort level. So that then when I went out on the mound, it was easier because now you're, you're in it and, and you're throwing at that 95% effort level and, and things are, are where you want them. But my, my tempo didn't really change at all from my bullpen sessions. It was just the effort level that changed. And, and that was easy to sync up, but that makes sense. So uh, it just got to a point where I had one or two checkpoints for my delivery. Um, number one was tempo. I wanted to make sure my tempo was right. And the other thing I, I struggled with from time to time was my turn. My turn would get a little bit short. Um, so those are the two things really that I just that I focused on. Um, and again, over time, the more you do it, the more you trust it. Um, you know, and I remember when I was in New York, you know, that was, that was Rick Peterson's line to me that, um, you know, helped me at that stage of my career is like, listen, your bullpen sessions are your dress rehearsals for when you get out there on the mound and it's the real deal. And it was true. It was very true, you know, and it's, you know, people say, well, how do you go out there and you got the bases loaded and you, the three, two count and you throw a change up. It's like, well, I I've done it a thousand times in the bullpen, you know? So I've, I've proven to myself that I can do it. So it's just a matter of executing it when you get out on the mound and the more you're able to do it in practice, the easier it is to trust it when you get into the real deal. You know, I, I, there's one question I had, Glav, you know, th those are all just fantastic from the change up grip all the way down kids. I hope you got that. We'll show it again at some point, but if you want to learn how to throw an easy change up, just grip it like Tom Glavin did that day in the outfield by accident. You got him all the way to the Hall of, all the way to the Hall of Fame. Um, one of the greatest commercials of all time, Chicks Dig the Long Ball. Yeah. You and Mad Dog. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember who what it was, but there's somebody had that great line when you're hitting each other in the stomach with the bat. Was it you? He said, step into it. Step into it. Was that yeah, your, your line? No, yeah. Doggy, doggy was hitting me in the stomach with the bat. Yeah. Step into it. Yeah. That was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, look, it was the – 
it was the height of the home run craziness and, and with McGuire and Sosa. And, you know, I remember getting a call from my agent saying, Hey, do you want to do this Nike commercial? I was like, sure. What is it? And, you know, when he was explaining it to me, I'm like, yeah, that seems kind of goofy or maybe whatever. And then, um, Heather you know, Lockler, once, then you heard Heather Lockler. Yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard that. I'm in. Okay. I'll try it. Right. Uh, but it was goofy. I mean, even when we did it, cause we did it in two segments, we did the first part of it when we were in Philly, then we did the next part of it on that same road trip in Florida. Uh, and you're doing different segments. And I remember me and doggy like talking about, we we're like, what the hell are they doing with this thing? And, and where's it going? And, and, uh, you know, and it, and it ended up being really good. It was funny. Um, you know, right up there with your Adidas commercial pony. That was a pretty good one too. Uh, but it's funny. I mean, even today, I still, I can't tell you how many people will come up to me, Hey, chicks dig the long ball, you know? And, you know, I always dread it when I go to a, a card show or something and somebody wants me to write chicks dig the long ball on a bat or a ball. It's like, Oh man. Uh, but it was fun. It was a ton of fun. And, you know, it's funny when I was playing with the Mets, uh, I went to, uh, Todd Zeal had a uh, fundraiser out in L.A. when we were out there at a bowling alley. I forget what the name of it was. And Heather Locklear was there. Uh, and I remember going over to her to that night. And I was like, you know, that commercial pretty much resurrected your career. And, you know, so she got a good laugh out of it. So it was good. Were, were big leaguers watching Melrose Place in the 90s? Of course they were. They had good looking ladies on there. So, of course, they were watching. <laughs> One more time before we let you go. You mentioned Bobby Cox. You were there in the beginning. Bobby Cox is the ejection king. Mm-hmm. Which one stands out the most to you? Um, well, I tell you my my favorite one because I think it it kind of sums Bobby up, right? So, you know, back in those days, um, you know, we had analytics of a different kind, uh, and I'm sure Coney did this too. But uh, we used to have the pitching chart that you had to keep score. So the next day, starting pitcher kept the pitching chart. And it was really for the for the pitching coach more than anything else, because you counted pitches, you counted strikes, balls, all that kind of stuff. We just did it all manually. Uh, and we had convinced Bobby at some point during during our time that, you know, what, Bobby, it's really much better for us to do the, the chart in the locker room, watching it on TV. And there was some truth to it, because, as you know, you're sitting on the bench. You can't really tell if a pitch is on the plate or off the plate. You can see high and low. You can't see off the plate. Or type um, of pitch, right? Slider, right, or the change type up. of pitch yeah. sometimes. You know? So we're like, it'd really be benef- beneficial for us to do this thing much more accurately if we can do it on TV. Now, truth be told, a big reason was we just wanted to sit in the day before we pitched and sit on the couch in our underwear and chart the game and maybe eat some food while we're in the clubhouse watching the game. So we had a game, and – there was all kinds of bickering going on on both sides. Both sides were complaining about calls. Uh, and I remember about the fourth inning, I went upstairs to get a cup of coffee and Greg was doing the chart. So I go up and I say, Hey doggy. I said, what's the deal with this umpire? I said, is he having a bad game? He's like, no, nah, not really. He's like, you know, he's, he's missed a few pitches here and there, but he's been pretty consistent for both sides. He's, you know, it's been, he's been all right. So two seconds later, Bobby comes up. And Bobby asked him the same question. And Greg, without batting an eye, is like, Bobby, this guy's terrible. He's missed so many calls tonight. He's awful. He's killing our guy, blah, blah. And he's just going on and on. And also Bobby walks out and I was like, Greg, what are you doing? He's like, what? Like that, you know, grin that he gets and whatever. He's like, what? I was like, you know, he's going to go down there and get thrown out. You know that. He said, oh, I know. So I'll be damned. Next inning, we go down there. And, and, and so many times, Bobby wouldn't even be watching the game. 
at that time because he'd have his lineup card in front of him and he'd be, you know, because he was always way ahead of what was going on and, and who was going to come in if this happened or whatever. And he wasn't even watching the pitch and somebody in the dugout said something, thumped up and just started screaming at the umpire, you've been awful all night, you've been horsey, and boom, gone out of the game. <laughs> I was like, typical, you know? But that's what he was. I mean, that's why guys love playing for him, because honest to God, A, he wanted to win more than anybody in uniform, but B, he was going to fight tooth and nail for every guy on that team. And if it meant one call a game, it didn't matter. He was going to fight tooth and nail for his guys, and, that, and that's why guys love playing for him. It's what you want for sure as a player. For sure. uh, we always hear it when we learn about the game and and hear players' stories. You want a manager that's going to fight for you, Tom. This was incredible. Um, we we thank you for for coming on, doing this, giving up your time here, and it was uh, really special to have you and David uh, talk about your experiences uh, for things that are you know rearing the rearing its ugly head here in 2021. Unfortunately, but uh, you know you guys have painted a really nice picture to allow us to see what could come out on the other side here and, and give us some hope here this off season. Oh, well, I enjoyed doing it. Coney is great to see you. And let's hope, uh, yeah, let's hope this thing has a uh, much quicker resolution than the last one we were involved in. Yeah. No, can't thank you enough, Tom. Enjoyed it. Enjoy talking, pitching with you any day of the week. And thanks for the change up grip. A lot of kids are going <laughs> to use that one. Tell you what. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, it's an easy way to learn a great change up. So. Without a doubt. Uh, we'll, we'll show you the grips uh, in, in future podcasts as well. But that's the Tom Glavin changeup. I highly recommend it. <laughs> David, what was your, your best story about Tom as a competitor? Because you guys work in a, in a collaborative nature off the field, but you had some pretty big moments going up against one another. There was one that definitely strikes James and I, I'm sure, but what, what about you? Well, you know, I, I, I watched Tom Glavin early in his career and watch him evolve and really have the utmost respect for him because of the lumps he took early in his career. He learned on the job. He developed a, a style of pitching that, uh, to me, was the ultimate finesse style of pitching. It wasn't just a changeup that he threw. It was almost three or four different pitches within a changeup grip that he learned and taught himself. So, you know, you, if there's one story with, with Glavin, uh, you know, for me, it's probably the missed opportunity to, to, to his demise. And to, for me, it was a break is that we didn't have to face each other in game seven in the 1996 World Series because that would have been the matchup. It would have been Tom Glavin against, against me for all the marbles in the 96 World Series. So, I, I really, uh, you know, I, you know, Jimmy Key had a great game in game six. Uh, um, Joe Girardi hit a big triple off of Greg Maddox. I fully expected that it was going to be me and Glavin because we're facing Greg Maddox in game six at Yankee Stadium. So uh, that, that was a missed opportunity. I'm sure he would have loved to have had that chance. I'm, I'm kind of I'm happy I didn't, I didn't have to pitch that game against Tom Glavin in game seven. What's striking is that the game three of that 96 World Series was the only game that you two faced each other in your big league careers. Um, even with all your time with the Mets, Glavin was in the National League with the Braves. Coney, you had 14 regular season starts against Glavin's Braves, and Glavin had nine regular season starts against your Mets, but you never quite matched up. You got a lot of Zane Smith uh, opposing starts, and he faced Doc Gooden a lot, uh, but it was really just that game three, uh, the only time that you guys faced each other. 
That's interesting because, you know, we were, that was, you know, pre, uh, you know, unbalanced schedule. You know, we, it was a balanced schedule back then. So you didn't have those 18 or 19 games or whatever it breaks down to now in the division. Uh, we, you definitely are going to have those kind of matchups present themselves more often with an unbalanced schedule. But yeah, it was, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, I remember game three very well, obviously 1996, it was a close game. I also remember uh, Glavin and I talking about it when we later became teammates with the Mets in 2003 about that potential game seven, you know, what we both were thinking and, you know, what, what it would have been like to, to, to pitch a, you know, you don't get too many chances to pitch in those kind of, those kind of games at game seven and all the marbles in the world series, that would have been remarkable. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. I'm sure, uh, as I said before, he would have loved the chance to, to pitch in that game. And, and then it's just remarkable that for the few times that you guys cross paths head to head again, one, uh, you know, you saw something and, and your teammates saw something at a young Tom Glavin in those late eighties games, especially when on paper, it didn't look like he was having the best time out on the mound, right? No, he was not. I mean, you think about it, seven and 17, he went, uh, you know, even though one loss records don't tell the whole story as we know, but uh, you know, his ERA was up in the mid fours. He was over five for a lot of the year. I think he pitched better at the end of the year to get it down in the fours. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, you could just sense that he was a competitor and Bobby Cox did a great job of, of running him out there, of, of, of letting him learn on the job. And, that's kind of a big debate in today's game. You know, what, what do you do with the young pitchers? Do you let them learn on the job or do you try to keep them in the minor leagues? I think the service manipulation issue is probably more prominent now than the debate on whether a pitcher should learn on the job in the big leagues or get more seasoning in the minor leagues. Glavin gave a great answer in this. In this. He thought he gives all the credit in the world to Bobby Cox for allowing him to go through those, those bumps in the road and going through a season where you go 7-17 seven and 17 and really get it handed to you and then come back and start to learn from it and, uh, and not get too down. He, it says a lot about his character. You know, it, it takes a certain personality for a player to go through that and weather that kind of a year and, and learn from it and not get too down and not lose your confidence. Tom Glavin, a terrific, uh, terrific career, one of 24 pitchers in the 300 win club and one of just four lefties to have 300 career wins. Terrific stuff. This is uh, the week of December 6th. James, this date, this week in pitching history, what do you have for us this week? Well, we'll uh, we're going back four years, so we're not going too far back into the, uh, the way back machine. December 8th, 2017, so the anniversary is on Wednesday. December 8th, 2017, Shohei Otani signs with the Angels. <laughs> he signs uh coming over from uh npb to the uh nippon ham from the nippon ham fighters uh the majors uh the signing bonus was for just a little over two million and uh, the angels also sent 20 million as a posting fee to his uh club in japan but he was he's been making the league minimum like any, any other player and then hitting free agency after six seasons so total with a great start to his career, 2018 American League Rookie of the Year. He's had some injury troubles, but then he has this unbelievable historic season in 2021, winning the AL MVP. He's been paid under $7 million by the Angels total uh, from 2018 to 21, and he was around $3 million uh, during this MVP season. He's due to make $5.5 million next year, arbitration eligible in 2023, and then he'll be a free agent for 2024 when he'll be 29 years old. So he'll probably cash in a lot, but Otani, 
you really can't say enough about him because he's he's done it. The, all the questions about, you know, is he going to be able to pull off this two-way thing? It On the mound, he has a 125 ERA plus. So that means that he's been pitching 25% better than the league average. And at the plate, his OPS plus is 137. So 37% better than average. So he's been able to be a star on both sides of the ball, which is really uh, incredible. And people said it couldn't be done and he's done it. Yeah, even if you factor in the $20 million posting fee, I'm going to have to say that the Angels are probably still getting them for like 30 cents on the dollar when it's uh, all said and done at this point. Yeah, the the intangibles, right? It's not just the fact that he's Rookie of the Year or MVP. It's all the jerseys he's selling. It's the ratings on television. He is must-watch must TV. When he came to New York and started that one game, even though it didn't go well. I mean, the whole city was lit up in New York to see Shohei Otani. Show, he is the show. So, yes, his residual value. Almost hard to put a number on at this point. All right, guys, three up, three down. As we close out the show here this week, each of us gives one storyline around the game that we believe deserves some more attention. What do we have, James? We'll start with you again. Well, with the uh, Hall of Fame announcements on Sunday, I think uh, it's it's a good time for us to to honor the the six players who who got the call and have been uh, that are going to be enshrined in Cooperstown uh, next summer. Uh, I know you guys will. will dive in a little deeper for each one, but just to run off the, the six, uh, there were two from the early baseball era committee, uh, the great Buck O'Neill, uh, Bud Fowler, and then from the golden days uh, committee, uh, Gil Hodges, Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva, and Jim Cott. So, uh, 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 well-deserved honor for, for everybody. And uh, it's great to have, uh, even if there's a shutout for the regular balloting, uh, coming up next month, it's good to know that they'll be in Shrinies part of the ceremonies next summer. Great to see Jim Cott, Kitty Cott, right? Our former colleague at the Yes Network finally get in. I mean, we've been talking about him for so long of being one of those guys that uh, was overlooked or not treated properly or fairly. Well, he gets in well-deserved 283 career wins, uh, 16 gold gloves, and the combination of a fantastic broadcasting career too. When you think about what he's given to the game, it's not just about your career numbers. It's uh, you know, the type of person he is and, and what, he, what he's done in the broadcast booth as well. Uh, you think about, you know, somebody who's really deserving on both ends, that's Jim Cott. So, yeah, my heart goes out to Jim Cott. Congratulations. And you know what this also does? It might open up the door for other guys, you know, to get in now. You know, we saw Harold Baines get in on one of these votes a couple of years ago. Now we see somebody like Jim Cott get in. You know who's the number one? similarity score to Jim Codd on baseball reference, Tommy John. Maybe Tommy John has a better shot now to get in. I think he's deserving myself, Tommy, the great Tommy John. So yes, congratulations to Jim Codd. I think it's terrific. I mean, I, I've, you know, obviously growing up a Yankee fan, David, when you were pitching, Jim was a Yankee broadcaster on, on the MSG network. So that's kind of my, my introduction to, to Jim Kai. I just knew him as, as a baseball broadcaster. And then you start to study and, and get in the weeds here of this guy's career. I mean, he's pitched four decades, four different decades in the big leagues, 25 seasons. So a, a terrific pitcher and just an all around baseball, great personality. But for me, I was extremely happy to see that Buck O'Neill finally 
was able to be voted in because I, I think of Buck O'Neill as one of the best storytellers in baseball history. I think we all have, you know, those TV shows that we watch that, that come on and you're going to stop what you're doing and you're going to watch it. Everyone has whatever it is. For me, it's, it's Ken Burns' baseball. Ask my girlfriend. I'll watch it on repeat. Uh, the same episode can air twice a week and I'm going to be watching it. And, and my favorite part about those documentaries is the commentary from Buck O'Neill because he's just so affable and warm and, and endearing to the fan. And I learned about him in college. I think a lot of people learned about him through the, the docu-series of, of Ken Burns' baseball. But if you talk about a guy who was a player, who coached, who managed, who scouted, I mean, if you take his scouting career, just his scouting career only, I think that's worthy of Cooperstown because without Buck O'Neill, and I'm only picking a handful here, if without Buck O'Neill, there's a good chance that the Yankees don't get connected to a guy like Elston Howard. You know, he, he discovered Ernie Banks and Lou Brock, uh, Lee Smith, Joe Carter. Uh, his story about discovering Oscar Gamble is terrific. And, and these are some of the all-time greats, some of the all-time colorful characters in baseball history. I mean, Oscar Gamble was like a staple of the 70s, but the, the story of him just being in the backfield in Alabama and, and noticing a teenage Gamble by the way he moved, not even about how he fielded a ball or how he ran, but just how he was moving his body. And then he watched him from his car take a couple of swings and he knew it. So there, there's just that baseball instinct. And he saw so much through his own experiences. And I think the, the great thing about a guy like Buck O'Neill is he, he teaches a, a great lesson in terms of loving baseball maybe sometimes when it's not loving you back loving your your country sometimes when it's not loving you back and just loving life when it may not be loving you back so I think each of us you know whatever our passion is you might go through that at some point and and Buck O'Neill has probably the best attitude to persevere and and go about a healthy way of living. And that's what always stood out with Buck for me. And, um, you know, I love learning about him. I think if you're, you know, a young fan, you don't know much about Buck O'Neill, take some time. This is a great time as any, but go on YouTube and, and, and go on Wikipedia and just learn about a, a guy like Buck O'Neill. And, um, yeah, we, we say congratulations to all the families of these, uh, these guys. And of course, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, the two living members were going to be able to go and, and get enshrined into Cooperstown. Uh, congratulations. Bravo, Justin. Well said. Well said. I can't even add anything to that. It was well said. Buck O'Neill, Hall of Fame person. Long overdue. Well deserved. All right, guys. Look, no, no baseball to watch. I mean, you, there's, there's Winter League action still, but not a lot going on. Uh, we're going to keep trucking, though. We're going to find things. Um, this, and that's not going to be hard for us either because we, we have a lot to, uh, to still talk about. We have our draft coming up. I mean, we probably could do that the week of Christmas. So in a couple of weeks, we'll finalize those details. But what, how, how do you guys spend your weeks during during the uh, the winter months here? David, are you are you in? Are you a football fan? Are you into the NFL? Are you more college football guy? Who's your team? What, what, are, you, what are you watching? 
everything. I just like sports in general. You know, uh, growing up in Kansas City, I'm a Chiefs fan and a Patrick Mahomes fan, junior, big time. His father, I was a fan of his father when he was a pitcher. Uh, certainly in almost my era, a little, little younger than me, but I certainly remember watching him pitch. So, so yes, uh, watching uh, you know, college football too, the way it's taken shape, you know, and in the college football playoffs nowadays and whether – whether that's going to expand or not, I'm interested in. Now you've got four teams. Uh, maybe, maybe it needs to be expanded. Who knows? We'll see. But uh, it's, uh, there, there's so much out there. College basketball. Went to the Nets game the other night here in New York. That's a beauty of living in New York. You can, you can hop on a subway, get over to, to Barclays Center. and I, I was lucky. They got me seats on the floor. Alex Rodriguez must know somebody because he got me seats on the floor. How about the Nets that? Game the other night. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> It was a great surprise seeing you because I was working uh, at the Yes Studio uh, doing Brooklyn Nets is, uh, when I'm not doing Yankees. And, uh, and boom, you pop up on the screen. It's David Cohn. So it, was, uh, it was good to see you on there. Yeah, it was cool. And there's nothing like sitting on the floor of an NBA game. The, the, the movement, the athleticism, just incredible. And you can keep your eyes open, too. because You're like two feet away from the inbounds line. So, you know, somebody can fly at you, not a ball, a player. You, you got you to gotta be heads up, ready to go when you – if you're lucky enough to sit down there, I was pretty privileged to get one of those seats. It certainly was, was nice to watch a game there. The action at its fastest courtside, that is for sure. Probably more than any other sport in terms of uh, being a live spectator. That, that's awesome. But, yeah, tons, tons of stuff to do, especially this time uh, in New York City. So, guys, I will, uh, we'll, we'll talk next week. Great chatting with you guys. Great chatting with Tom Glavin. And uh, we thank you, the listener. Be back with another episode next Tuesday. Again, the, the best way you could support this podcast, rate, review, subscribe, so we can keep doing what we love here and, and doing it to the standards that you guys set, the listeners out there. Thanks to our great producer, Dan Work. Tell the slab. Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you all next week, everybody.